<coughs> you hear that sound? That's the sound of Elon Musk skipping town and taking off to Mars because Ford still has the most popular truck. They got all the Fs. F-150, 250, 350, 450. The next person to come to me with an idea for how to sell this tone-deaf Cybertruck and gives an F about this company gets a raise and a Tesla and humane working conditions. Come by my office in 20 podcast minutes with your proposal. 20 podcast minutes later. All right, you three are our best and brightest. What do you got for me? Well, sir... Given all of our market research, the most optimal way to reach the most customers is to go to middle America, where they use trucks. So here's my plan. Listen here, guys. We get it. The Tesla Cybertruck. It's got a little bit of edge and a little bit of point. Just like all those compliments that got you in trouble in the first place. No, 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 no. We can't tell them they feel inadequate. Next one. I'm disappointed in you. Okay, boss, I think it's time for you to listen to my pitch. I think that the best untapped market for trucks is women, obviously. And now it's time for Tesla Cybertruck to get in on that women action. Ladies, are you tired of your man always driving the bigger car, the better truck, that Dodge Ram taunting you in the driveway? Well, it's time for you to get into a Tesla Cybertruck. Sorry, we can't do that ad. We'll have to pay the pink tax. Next, please. All right, well, it, if you're anything like me, then you finish your, your work in your 80 hours in the work week for Mr. Elon, Mr. Big Shot, and then you, uh, you want to avoid going home to the humiliation that is your family, and so you, you go to the bot. And uh, you you have a couple drinks, and it's all a good time, but, you know, all good things must end, all good things must die, so then you have to go back home. Last call. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Hey, Tesla app. Come come get me, Cybertruck. Pick me up. I'm here. Absolutely. You know you can always count on Tesla Cybertruck. Hey, Joe, are you good to drive there, buddy? It, it's okay. I got the uh, Cybertruck. I'm good. Worry about yourself, Steve. My sensors say that you're on your fourth DUI. Oh, yeah. This is comfy. Cybertruck, take me home. Charting course for home address. How about another brewski, my friend? Cy- Cybertruck, why... Why am I so lonely? Well, Joe, it appears that you're so drunk that you didn't realize that the designated driving feature is not coming out till 2024. What are your other ideas? I need another one now. I, I don't know. Throw a metal ball at it. It's like indestructible, right? I like it. I like the idea. Run with it. Let's do it. Nothing can go wrong when we throw a steel ball at our car. Now, I have to get home to the missus. So get the hell out of here. Peace and quiet in my Cybertruck. Cybertruck, play my favorite podcast, and you know what it is. Your wish is my command. Now playing Son of a Ginger. Entertaining entertainment reviews. Well, thank you, Cybertruck. We're a favorite of a Tesla exec. 
it up in the world, guys? Over here at Son of a Ginger. How long until they bring in a Tesla Easter egg that just plays our podcast on repeat? I hope they do. <laughs> or it's downloaded to every iPhone that exists. Absolutely. Like you too. Well, I hope you too are ready and excited to talk about our next episode, and that's talking Ford versus Ferrari. And as always, I'm your co-host, Patrick Baylor. I'm your other co-host, Beth Marcinko. I'm the third co-host, Mason Enzo Ferrari Marone. <laughs> oh, so much flair, so much gusto. In Modena. 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 Is uh, whenever you learn any news yourself, does a photographer dash on a little uh, Vespa scooter and run across the city to tell you the news? You mean a paparazzo? A paparazzo? That was a straight-up paparazzo in that movie, wasn't well, it? Well, paparazzi sure. is an Italian word. <gasps> Wait! Yeah, like the uh, where that word comes from. I hope that wouldn't happen because then our plan to sell this podcast to this American life would be ruined. Ira Glass, no! It'll be purchased by Gimlet. <laughs> we'll get purchased by someone one day, hopefully. Fingers I mean, crossed. Disney has futures on us, so... Right. <laughs> but we have a not-too-futuristic film. We have a very we have a film set very much in the past, in 1966 and just the early 60s, with Ford versus Ferrari. Not about, literally, I thought, Henry Ford versus Enzo Ferrari making things, but I thought the first of the Ferrari name, the first of the Ford name, were going to race their very first cars, and I was sorely mistaken this movie about the 60s and advertising and racing and everything in between. Right. I think some of the most compelling stories in racing, especially European racing, because very much in America, we think of racing as NASCAR, right? It's an oval-shaped, turning-to-the-left sort of thing, which they dig on in this movie. But I loved when they dug on NASCAR in this movie. Some of the most compelling stories in racing center around rivalries or underdog stories. It's all things that make just a sports movie, which this was. It was a sports movie. It makes a sports movie good. Racing movies in the realm of sports movies always tend to have more action. You know what I think is interesting about this specific, if we're calling it a sports story, that usually the mentor or the coach of the person who is the subject of the film is trying to break a spirit and make them more a part of a team. And the message in this film is so opposite. That individualism is more important for the success of the eventual victory. And then when that person gives up their individualism, they get screwed. To expand upon your point, Beth, like that we see that BB, the executive, yeah, like literally say like, oh, just be a team player. And what was going through my head when every time he said be a team player is like, that is such BS. You're just so insecure at the top of your ivory tower that you're not the one actually like succeeding. So you're going to do all this like little micromanagey things to actually run the show while, you know, your guys in the trenches with talent succeeding are the ones, you know, winning this thing for you. Right. And on Beatty's part, it's a power trip and a lack of control that's really driving him to insert himself into the race and into all of these situations that create the tension for the film to move forward. Indeed. I think throughout history, we see a lot of times business, big business, whatever it be, whatever century you're talking about, the big business being something that does in turn, fund something that is incredibly artistic. You think the Sistine Chapel, right? Something like that. And in the same way, the Shelby GT, the GT40 was that. But I think what this movie really does try to explore, especially kind of coming to a point with the title itself, is that the real talent operates underneath what will fund them, especially in racing. They explain it well in the exchange between Carol Shelby and Ken Miles 
when Carol Shelby's like, you got to accrue the sponsors. You got to you got to gather the sponsors. Right. It's he's telling him that in order to do what you need to do, you have to make the people with the money happy. You have to do that in order to fulfill yourself, to fulfill your purpose. You have to do some things that you won't like. And I think that calling this movie Ford v. Ferrari instead of Miles v. whatever Italian racer. Or Miles v. the establishment. Miles v. the man. They're not in it for the glory. They're not in it for the name recognition. They're not in it for any of that stuff that makes them go down in history books. They're in it because they feel they have a deeply rooted passion that is specifically tied to their purpose. And I, that's one thing that I felt was completely communicated in this movie. I keep having to, I guess, like, remind myself and trick myself, like, oh, shit, this is a sports movie, too. But it is one where, yeah, I thought of all the, the heart of, like, yeah, kind of, like, this anti-establishment and individualism stuff that I like so much of it. That's what I've thought of first coming out of this movie and the racing stuff after. But the racing stuff was pretty cool. I didn't even feel like this movie was anti-establishment. I felt like it was more posing establishment as the necessary evil. Maybe anti-micromanagement? I don't know. Yeah, sure. Well, it's all about office politics when you come down to it. Not only money versus passion, but also like what we were talking about with Beatty, where it's who has the power in the situation to make these decisions. Shouldn't it be Ken because he's behind the wheel of the car? And we see Shelby fighting for that because he has that deeply rooted passion too. And he knows what it's like to be behind the wheel at Le Mans. But Beatty just doesn't get it. He wants the glory that the driver would have and wants to disguise his want as the greater good of the company. And I think it's really amazing that when Shelby takes the deuce out for a ride and makes him ball like a little baby, <laughs> that Henry Ford Jr. then really can get a fraction of the feeling that that driver has when they're behind the wheel of that car. Yeah. He puts it into some good perspective. But yeah, like just as an overall whole, taking like a quick step back, like with the overall like setup of this movie, I thought it was all very well done. This setup is, as we you know, teased a little in the cold open, Ford hates losing in the marketplace and they want to be cool again. So they try to literally take on Ferrari and the Le Mans 66 and they make a cool car really quickly with Carol Shelby, who, yeah, is a racer that had to stop racing because of all the heart pills and stuff like that. Then he has Ken Miles, who is a hot tempered racer. And and seeing them go through all of the pitfalls and the highs and lows. There's a bromance aspect. Follow through, yeah, bromance, yeah, as we see them yeah, just try to make a car that can beat the Ferraris. A bromance where the one character, arguably the main character, Carol Shelby, doesn't admit that they were friends until the very end of the film. I think their friendship is just rooted in that passion that they both have and that each of them can tell that they share this passion and it goes deeper than even a very close friendship, I think. It's a common purpose that's uniting them where they have this opportunity to achieve something great and historic that still has not been replicated to this day. Yeah. Yeah. They realized that neither of them could achieve what they set out to without the other. And I, I think at the end of that, you see it sort of coming to a head with Carol Shelby finally looking at Ken Miles and saying, this is up to you. When he gets the call from BB to say, finish with the Fords. And then Carol Shelby goes to Ken Miles and says, it's up to you. I'm going to leave it to you. That kind of thing. He finally gives him his sort of due. It's the one thing that Ken Miles probably wanted was just the freedom. Yeah, the freedom to drive and hit first place. But 
sort of segueing in, right? The fact that we've been calling them Ken Miles and Carol Shelby when it's Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Some heavy hitting actors. Is a testament to the, not only the writing of this movie, but uh, the performances as well as these two. They have great chemistry. And then the, the script itself is fantastic. It's a great exercise in pacing. And it's a great exercise in having heartfelt dramatic moments that juxtapose themselves well against the very visceral action-packed racing scenes. Which I think is really funny just because I think that that sort of writing and pacing and emotion mirrors the races. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 for sure. Pacing and racing, the Ford versus Ferrari way. You oddly like made me like have chills and maybe it's just because it's very cold out these days, but I think chills because you say story, I don't know. I like how this felt like the most like movie movie I've seen in a while. Yeah. Like it has like just a real classic like you know like TCM kind of feel, you know? Maybe it's because like big heavy hitting actor and big heavy hitting actor of our generation now finally getting to work together and then it's set in the 60s and stuff like that. The certain vibe that I got from this just made me already think like they're going to be talking about this for like oh the tour de force acting of these two big stars in like 50 years I know it yeah absolutely I'm sure this will go into their backlog of fantastic performances as these two actors are remembered throughout history right but on that note there are a lot of things they did in this movie that are designed to subliminally make you feel that way already one being the color the color of the movie is very rich it's very rich in reds and blues having that clash that sort of it's not complimentary but it's sort of tertiary clash of colors the coloring of the movie itself really gives this sort of warm almost prideful feeling because of the red whites and blues right uh <laughs> america it's in the movie poster too oh is it it definitely is oh damn you know ford is blue ferrari's red and there's that white noise aspect to the poster as well that sort of shows you what the characters are dealing with. The poster now is it's so simplistic, but it's much more tied into the themes of the film than I ever thought until just now. But like yeah, please describe this poster to us via audio medium. You have your two main characters standing around this very beautiful blue and orange Shelby GT for I'm gonna call this one the Shelby GT because it's the only one that raced in the film that was the Shelby one, right? The blue and orange Shelby GT. Fantastic car. They're standing on either side of it and every Everything, all the typography, the illustration, all occurs in the lower third of the poster. The top and middle third are just white space. So you have this, all this white space, and they're sort of looking on into this white space. It really goes to explain the story of the film because they're tasked with something that they don't, that nobody's done before, which is beat Ferrari at their own game and deal with all of these people in this certain way. And you're funded by one of the biggest car companies in the world. You're not a boutique. All this white space, all this unexplored area, very just great poster design. I, like, I don't want to go way too much into just the poster. Sure, because we're talking about the whole movie. You know, we start seeing these two characters who have a great dynamic navigating how to achieve their dreams essentially and in the center of it are these two companies right and yeah you say companies and mason you say the certain yeah like american colors that we're used to that i feel like we saw in a lot of ads in the 60s or at least like how a lot of advertising was set up back then and as much as i like this movie also it was like kind of a low-key ad for all of the many many brands that were shown in this you know i saw a dunlop sign here and a midas sign here and then obviously like it's all about ford and ferrari did this movie make you want to buy a ferrari or a ford after this well i've wanted to 
buy a Ferrari since I was like nine years old. Haven't we all wanted to buy one? But then we, we all know we have to get a Ford. You gotta get the minivan for the kids. No, we have to get the Tesla Cybertruck. Of course. Because I've been sold after that pitch. Sponsorship and racing is they go hand in hand. Yes. Right? And I feel like they didn't sacrifice product placement for the sake of authenticity. Except for there is one shot where... The copper tone. Yeah, where you see the copper tone button. And I still don't know why they just framed Matt Damon all the way. And then you just see mostly the copper tone button in the frame. Whether to maybe just sell you some sunscreen. Yeah, I don't know specifically why they... I mean, did you see Ken Miles' neck? Like, that's why. <laughs> I, was, okay. I was literally sitting there thinking, like, are they making some sort of subtle joke at the fact that Ken Miles is really tan and Carol Shelby's a little whiter? Or maybe it's because someone is just pulling Ken Miles' ass back to come back to everyone, just like the dog is on the Coppertone girl. You know, I know you're making a joke, but you might be right. Have we figured out this very not-so-subtle ad placement that may make sense to the film now? First of all, that's an iconic ad. Well, yeah. Very much has its roots in that era. But what's being depicted is for sure something of a person trying to make their stride and being held back by an opposing force. Son of a gun, we figured it out. Son of a ginger. Son of a ginger. So that goes along with what I'm trying to talk about here is all of the subliminal ways in which they really use imagery and color and framing and other visual quirks to enforce the message and enforce the story, to reinforce it. I fully understand it now. What the hell do we talk about now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, I guess we're done. (laughs) What they didn't pull back on, though, was the racing scenes. And I'm going to be honest, I really wanted to drive my car very fast after watching this movie. Luckily, we were not doing donuts in the mall parking lot after seeing this movie. But man, I wanted to. Let's talk about the races. Let's talk about the editing of the races. I think, first of all, the races in this film were edited to perfection. They're gripping. They really did not skimp on whoever they hired to achieve this. They never lingered on something too shortly. This is going to sound very boastful. I don't mean it to, but I need to provide some backstory because I know how hard it is to edit racing, race cars. For a while, while I was interning, I worked for a company that sponsored a race car driver and I had to edit footage of his races, whether it was GoPro footage on his car or footage of him going around the track, whatever it was, we had to edit something into a deliverable ad piece, right? It becomes very, very difficult to do too many quick cuts in racing. Sure. Uh, To do too many things where you are bouncing from one aspect to the next to make it seem like it's fast and moving and all that. I think it's really difficult because you don't always get that establishing shot that you often subconsciously look for in a movie. All those 180 lines being broken left and right. Right, exactly. You're going around a track instead of just a still scene. Right. So James Mangold really did direct these scenes to perfection because he knew he was directing for the edit. He knew that he was directing so that when we had A, B, C, D camera on X driver and Y driver, and when we get to the edit, we'll be able to bounce from this moment to this moment very effectively and be able to linger on things long enough to explain the emotions, right? Yeah, you figure out yeah exactly what, whether it be Miles or even this unnamed Italian racer is thinking. That's exactly what I was going to say too, Patrick, that those close-ups on the driver's emotions as the things are happening are so useful to make those cuts way more smooth so that you're not just focusing on the cars, but you're focusing on the people. So you get more of that emotion, but also it makes the film 
easier to watch. Yeah, it establishes eyeline and it establishes where you're coming up next on the track. It establishes what Ken might have to do with, yeah, with the braking to get around the Ferrari driver to lap him on the curve and stuff like that. Yeah, all those little extra yeah moments just made me understand it as someone does, that does not watch any racing in my free time. To that point, back to the way they've explained things visually so well, is that they have the first time Miles gets in a crash, he overheats the brakes, the brakes are shot, and the discs turn red, right? So later in the Le Mans race, you see he's braking and the discs are turning red. You immediately know he's in trouble, he's pushing it, he's pushing the car too hard. And that explains to everyone that doesn't know anything about cars the tension of what's going on there, right? I swear it by the end of this movie I thought I like should have been in a like a pit crew and <laughs> and told them like dude of course come on you got to go back into the pit your brakes are horrible come on man Yeah exactly and this may even go back to the Ron Howard movie Rush Ron Howard and his director of photography actually did pioneer some pretty technical advancements in filming race scenes with How so I don't know exactly how they did it. The little featurette I watched about Rush when I saw that movie a couple of years ago didn't go into great detail about what they actually did, but they did make a little featurette about how they wanted top-notch camera work for the races and had to pull a James Cameron to achieve them. But to the detriment of that movie, I feel. It's another movie about a racing rivalry. It's another movie about a hot-headed driver, but you can definitely see where the budget from that movie went it was into the race scenes. Fantastic race scenes in Rush. What Ford v. Ferrari does that Rush didn't was it had the heart and the human characters to back up the tension that happens in the race scenes. Yeah. I would say that the race scenes in Rush are probably better than Ford v. Ferrari, but Ford v. Ferrari was a miles better movie because... Pun intended? A kilometers better movie. <laughs> no, miles. Uh, it's, you know, you Ken get miles. the double. Yeah, you get All the right, 10 right. miles and the, the driving mile. A Shelby ahead. <laughs> yeah. It was a miles better movie because it had both. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Mason, that James Mangold and the wonderful editing team of Andrew Buckland, Michael McCusker, and Dirk Westervelt really brought both the technical savvy and the heartstring savvy of this flick. Because... I don't know about you. There's there's a couple like little cryy moments too. Oh, absolutely. After the races, I think my favorite part, oddly enough, was just seeing sad Enzo Ferrari after all the Fords won. When he lifts his cap to Ken Miles, they have that moment where you're to believe that they made eye contact with each other, and yeah. Ferrari tipped his cap to him. But even that, I just kept thinking that what a sweet little Italian man this Mr. Ferrari is. <laughs> he just runs a successful little company. Good for you, Mr. Ferrari. So, Pat, you really like the scene with Enzo Ferrari walking away from this race a little dejected, but respectful of Ken Miles. But did you have a scene that made you cry a little bit, made you feel a little bit more emotional? I liked all the moments with the kid, with Ken Miles' kid, Little Miles, Kilometer, we can call him. I don't remember his actual name. Kilometer. Millimeter. <laughs> little Millimeter Miles. So, you know, the end was especially tough uh, where Shelby was giving him the wrench that Miles threw at him. I just like the little bonding moments. Those were nice. Like, there were parts of this movie where they could have set Miles up more and more to be the apathetic dad that doesn't care, but he does care. Those more human moments that we really only see with Miles' side, I think were my favorite parts. And just really all of his family life stuff. I wish we could have gotten it a little bit more with Shelby, but 
this would have been a much longer movie. But the fact that we got to really focus on those tender moments from Miles with both his wife and his kid. And then, yeah, where Molly was then driving Miles around crazily in their station wagon to interrogate him on what the hell he was been up to. Like, that cracked me up. So just anything with the Miles family. Just a wow. Yeah. Beautiful. I like that, too. And I found that the scenes for me when Shelby and Miles were together and building on their common passion and their friendship and working together for this common purpose and then seeing Shelby struggle between the suits and Miles. That was really emotional for me because of the responsibility that he feels to honor his promise to Miles and also to make sure that this project is seen all the way through. Yeah, and like his respect to Miles as such a good racer. We mentioned it before. I just loved anything with the executives because I feel like all of us have been there and maybe in some of our jobs. So it was a nice nice to see the good creative person, you know, really stick it to the man and show results by like just being confident in what they can make. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goes to what I was going to say for this prompt here is when John Bernthal's character finally gets a chuckle when he realizes that Ken Miles has broken his own record now like three times, is poised to win the whole thing. John Bernthal just starts to laugh because he knows that BB's been playing the suck-up this whole time, has been shooting down his ideas that have been phenomenal the whole time because he BB's not the one who came up with them. He's the one who sucks up to Mr. Ford or whatever. In a sense, he's successful and like knows what he's doing, but John Bernthal is the one with the good ideas. You know, the fact that he got to have his last laugh for a minute and say, like, you know what? I had this good idea and the results are showing in droves. I know. Also, the name Leah Iacocca is very fun to say as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Totally mm-hmm. agree. Now imagine John Bernthal say, Leah Iacocca. Absolutely. So getting into the final segment of our beautiful show here, thinking about smelling a sequel, we kind of already made one. At the beginning of our show in the cold open, but realistically, how could they do a sequel? They probably couldn't. I could see Matt Damon playing Carol Shelby again, but like older Carol Shelby, older Carol Shelby, Carol Shelby's death. I don't. I, I really don't know. I don't know if there are any other stories about Carol Shelby. His daughter Shelby Shelby, <laughs> Shelby Shelby. His son Cobra. Cobra Shelby. <laughs> also, Carol sounds like a girl's name enough, so just Carol Shelby Jr., but it's a girl. Cobra is a good pull, too. <laughs> yeah. What do you guys think? Like, How would they do a sequel if they were to do a sequel? Are we going to see a sequel? Probably not. If so, what are these actors doing next? I think it would be really cool to see the development of McLaren, because you get little bits of him in this movie mm-hmm. being the kind of second fiddle to Ken Miles, which is crazy because... Obviously, McLaren has a lot of name recognition now in terms of racing and car design. I think a biopic about McLaren might be cool to see next. The big thing that with the end of this movie that like really bummed me out is that the name recognition of McLaren or Shelby. And then it's like, there probably isn't a Ford Miles, is there? That's a car that probably never existed. The Ford Ken. Get the Ken, guys. It's really smooth down there. (laughs) (laughs) It's really smooth down there. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> but so to see someone that does have name recognition, McLaren would be cool. But when it comes to other names, you know, I mentioned Iacocca earlier. Afterwards, realized why is this name so familiar? Like, just feel like I've heard it before. 
And then also never realized that Lee Iacocca was later known for literally reviving Chrysler. Mm. So what if they make a whole movie where it focuses on John Bernthal's character as a little bit older Lee Iacocca and he revives Chrysler? I don't know if there was any races for Chrysler because I think the revival was minivans and stuff like that. But I'll watch a minivan race. That would still be really cool to follow his career. I'm really interested in that sort of creative and advertising. I binged Mad Men many times yes. at this point. But yeah, I would love to see that. I thought he did a great job in this role. It'd be another kind of movie. But again, I'll watch John Bernthal race some station wagons. Totally. To that point, there's another story there. But also, we haven't seen a show, like a serialized television show, really take on a narrative scripted racing story and be as good as something that is true. The two racing movies in recent memory, Rush and Ford v. Ferrari, were both true stories about racing rivalries in one way or another. And I would really like someone to kind of step up to the plate and do a scripted fictional racing narrative, not Speed Racer. So here's what they can do. So this was this was a film made by 20th Century Fox, owned by Disney, what else does Disney own? They own the rights to cars on Pixar. So on Disney Plus, the next, the next series is a car style origin story about how all these cars brands got made and made famous. That's some, uh, That's some synergy right there, baby. Disney also owns the rights to the Herbie movies. So we put Herbie in a Cars movie. I feel like you guys took my (laughs) suggestion and just took a knife and stabbed it in the heart. (laughs) You you were just like... (laughs) Where's the Tesla exec when we meet him? We need him to pitch this to Disney right now. You guys just BB'd my idea. (laughs) We BB'd it, baby. BB, baby, for all the IDDD ladies. Oh, my God. Excuse me? Uh, Mason, do you have an idea? Not immediately off the back of my head, but I feel like I know what makes this movie and Rush very good. Rush, I didn't like that much, but I knew the good parts of it. More than a lot of movies I watch, and you could probably tell from how much I've talked this episode, (laughs) I feel like I can point out what makes a good racing narrative. And if I were to sit down and sort of write it out, or if someone who is better than me at writing dialogue and writing scenes were able to sit down and sort of discuss what in these based on true story films works and then applied that to a TV show sure. that came out every week or was bingeable. Sure. And also in the same way, again, within the whole Fox Disney family, that would be a great show I would see on FX in the same style of like an American crime story where a whole season can be about something like this. American rivalry. Feud. Oh, yeah, they have Feud. Feud? FX already did it. So that could be a, a next season of Feud. A little bit more bro-y than, than the first season, but... Cool. I wouldn't even say bro-y. I would just say something different. Although that series of Ryan Murphy's is another of his based on true story anthology series. Mm, okay, okay. Nice. The precedent is definitely sent. So It already li- exists. I'm just ignorant. I'm it's not fictional. They just need a new season. So Ryan Murphy, if you're listening, we have an idea for the next FX season of Feud. So those are some very fully loaded ideas, Beth and Mason. But guess what? We're also fully loaded with a big old library of podcasts, and you can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're going to race over to listen to our library of episodes, and you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, write us a review and leave us five stars. Let us know what you liked about this movie, or a movie that you think we should review soon. And if you want to look for any high-octane content, head over to 
Son of a Ginger Podcast on Instagram. But with that, I've been your gas-guzzling, low-MPG, fuel-economy host, Mason Moreau. I've been your female R&D director, Beth Marcinko. And I'm already at 7,000 RPMs, but I can keep going more and more, Patrick Baylor. And this has been Son of a Ginger. Vroom! Vroom!